You are listening to Calvary Spokane's Prophecy Update series, What's the World Coming to? Would you turn in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2? And I want to begin by reading the first 12 verses. And if you're looking at your notes and your bulletin, um, everything, I've changed the, the title three times and the passage twice. So uh, would you please, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1, and you don't mind standing with me. I would uh, like to read the passage as you follow along. Again, the Apostle Paul is speaking to the church in Thessalonica, and he says, Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us, saying the day of the Lord has already come. In other words, you missed it. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion, or literally translates the word apostasia, we would translate apostasy occurs, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember when I was with you and I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. But the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming." The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan, displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. And for this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. Let's begin with prayer. Father, as we continue our study through these things that you have foretold are coming in the future, we ask God that you would set the light of eternity in our mind's eye, that we might be looking not so much to what is happening in the here and now as much as we do the things that are yet to come, that the trajectory of our life would be eternal and not temporal that we would see our lives as being more than the bookends of birth and death. We'd see its meaning more than the accumulation of things and stuff. But rather, we would see that we have been created by you, for you, for your glory, and that our reward is in heaven, ultimately. Help us to have that transformed way of thinking, we pray, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, twice referred to Satan's activities in the world. Basically, he used an interesting word, the word methodia in Greek, which is where we get our word method. It often means a strategy or a, a plan that someone has. Uh, in fact, in chapter 4, he referred to it as a deceitful scheming, is the way the NIV translated it. And again, in chapter 6 and 11, he talked about the schemes of the devil, and in Corinthians, Paul uses a, a similar phrasing when he says in chapter 2, verse 11, that we need to be aware of Satan's devices. Um, and the word there is ethumesis. It means to his deliberations, his ponderings, his inward thoughts, his reflections. You see, what these passages seek to inform us about is that Satan has a plan, he isn't just, you know, flying. He's, like, he's not like a chicken with his head cut off. He's not running in every direction, seeing how much mayhem he can create at any given time. But he has a very carefully orchestrated strategy or a stratagem, an agenda that he wants to be, fulfill. And he does this in contrast to God's plan. You see, God's plan is for mankind's redemption and eternal salvation. God is long-suffering that all should be saved, Peter told us, that none should be lost. That's God's great plan. He says, what does a man's life consist of if it's just the things of this world? He said, we were created for an eternal destiny, and ultimately that's where our final reward and justification and greater eternal joy will come from. 
But Satan's plan is a diametric opposite. He wants mankind's destruction, and he wants his eternal condemnation or damnation. In other words, he wants to bring as much chaos, pain, and destruction to your life as he possibly can, and in the end of your life, after living a miserable life, he wants to then carry you down to hell that he might have company when he arrives which is basically kind of a figurative way of describing it. Peter put it this way. He said in 1 Peter 5.8, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. There could be no more frightening image that can be set before us than the idea of having a lion uh, pursuing you. Many years ago, when I was, I was up in Chandigarh in uh, northern India, uh, I had, on one of the days off, the guys who were running this discipleship school that I was speaking at asked me if I wanted to go to their zoo. And I said, sure, I'm curious to see what kind of animals you have. And it was underwhelming in many levels, but it was strange because they, they said, well, do you want to see the lions? And I said, oh, yeah, sure, whatever. So we climbed in the back of a pickup that had a chicken wire cage over it. <clears throat> yes. And they drove us out there and they threw chunks of meat out of the truck towards the lions. And suddenly, 60 or 70 lions are all around the truck, eating and growling and having a great time. And I thought to myself, thank goodness for this sturdy chicken wire. <laughs> but I tell you, it's, an, it's, it's one of those moments where you just simply said, is this where it's going to end, Lord? <laughs> Is this where, well, I'm going to be ripped apart as I'm pulled out of this because they see white meat? <laughs> well... My point, though, is this is a frightening picture that oftentimes we don't really grab hold of. And, but it was meant to really be a stirring and intimidating and frightening. How many of us actually take that kind of view when we think about our lives, that we are facing a diabolical threat that is looking for any opportunity to bring harm to your life and to those you love and the world around you? I think that it was probably expressed best by A.W. Tozer many years when he wrote in one of his books, he says, people think, the world not as a, think of the world not as a battleground, but as a playground. He says, we, we are not here to fight, we're here to frolic. The worship growing out of such a view itself has become a sort of sanctified nightclub without champagne. You can see how dated it is because a lot of churches now actually include the champagne. So it's, it's not such a crazy thing, but it realizes that people see their life primarily through the lens of the moment they're in without any greater long-term view, especially eternal view. And what's amazing is that some 37 times in the New Testament, the nine writers of the New Testament echo the words of Jesus that we see in Mark 13, 35, when Jesus said, be on the alert, for you do not know when the master is coming, lest he should come suddenly and find you asleep. And then he says, what I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. So again, 37 different times in the New Testament, we are exhorted to be watching and waiting, to be ready in a preparedness for Christ. In other words, in no uncertain term, Jesus said that we should live with a daily expectancy of the, what we call the imminent return of Christ. The word imminent simply means it can happen at any moment. In fact, it's interesting, the root word for that in the original language means to have something that's overhanging. The idea of a, a fruit that is overhanging so far, it's about to drop to the ground. He said we need to live with that kind of perspective on our life that Christ can come for his church, for his people at any moment. And it's not like we simply say, well, therefore I just go up on a mountaintop as some did in 1847 and wait for Christ wearing white bedsheets. But at the same time, it's always this idea that what I'm doing today is what God wants me to do, but I'm ready to let go of it at any moment and follow him where he will lead me. I find this is so important, and I've emphasized it many times over the years, that one of the things that John said in his first letter to the church in the third chapter, he said, this is the very hope that purifies us. In other words, the realization that we can be caught up in a moment is something that affects the decision-making process that I'm engaged in in this moment. There are certain things I might be drawn to and I just simply say, no, I'm not going to go there because I don't want to be in that context when Christ comes. 
And I think that, that that readiness, that awareness is something that is really key to keeping the right perspective and focus about the way we live our life. But if, unfortunately, I believe that most believers, most professors of Christ, in fact, I would put myself in this category at various times. I, I catch myself here as well. We really fit more into that third seed of the parable of sower, which he said is the seed lands amongst the thorns or amongst the weeds, and it becomes choked off, and choked off with some very specific things, with the worries of this life, the the deceitfulness of wealth and, and riches. You know, the deceitfulness of wealth and riches is that somehow they can make you happy, that somehow they can satisfy your greatest needs. That's why people live deceived by that uh, perspective, not knowing, as Solomon said, they have a way of taking wings and flying away. Or he talks about the pleasures of this life and the desire for other things, just simply wanting something else. And that's really kind of one of the more subtle aspects of it, because oftentimes people stop really seeking the Lord because they're busy seeking something else. And one of the hardest faith positions to come to, to stay in, if you will, is the idea that the most important thing that happens in my life is those things that surround and wrap themselves around the will of God for my life. That what I really come to believe by faith that things that God has for me will come to me because he has those things for me. And things that I am not able to acquire or to reach are there because God doesn't want me entangled by those things. But one of the things that Paul warned in, in, his, in, in his first letter to Timothy in the sixth chapter, he says, those who desire riches, he says, they end up piercing themselves through with many sorrows. It doesn't bring the happiness or fulfillment. You know, say you're like a, a billionaire that goes on the democratic debate stage. You know, all that wealth has not made that man any help happier. In fact, I would say it probably has made him a lot less happy this morning than he was the day before. But we understand in a realistic sense to the degree that we see it in other people's lives. But unfortunately, we often buy into the deception that if I just had a little bit more... Survey was taken years ago. How much more money do you need to be happy? And it came back, on average, people said, I just need to make 10% more than I make right now, and then I would be happy. It didn't matter how much you made, you just needed 10% more. And it shows you that it's kind of an elusive goal that we pursue out there. And what does Jesus say to us in the Sermon on the Mount? He says, don't worry about those things. Don't spend worrisome effort. Don't make that the passion of your life. And I often say to people who are in business, don't make your business about making money. Make your business about providing services and goods to people that you feel good about, that you can hold up as something that's honorable. And if you do that, you'll find that God will bless your labors and bless your endeavors. He may even grant you long life and riches. But if you make long life and riches, popularity and fame and possessions your goal, you're going to become a very frustrated and even lonely person. But I say all of this by way of introduction because this really lies at the heart of Satan's plan, his strategy to get us to focus our thoughts, even our prayers, on finding, we might call it, my best life now. Instead of praying, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we find ourselves slipping into another prayer. My will be done, and I want my kingdom to come on earth, and whatever happens in heaven is secondary. And suddenly he gets us completely moving in the wrong direction. The subtlety of Satan is is how he changes our thoughts. And we often, as I've said before, think that spiritual warfare is about Satan coming at you with a, a, a Mack truck and running you over with an overwhelming swarm of demons. People saying, I'm being attacked by the devil. Let me tell you, I'm not saying that that never happens. But what I will tell you is this. His most powerful weapon is the thoughts, the ideas he puts into your brain. And let me give you an example of some that came to my head as I was thinking about it. The first one is the idea that it's more important to be popular than to be prophetic in the lives of people all year round. And what do I mean by prophetic? I mean prophetic in the sense that we tell them the will and the heart of God. 
Many times we find Christians and even sadly pastors who are backing away from addressing critical issues of our times because they don't want to cause unpopularity or people become uncomfortable. They don't want to say things that would cause their numbers to drop or to address an issue that would cause somebody to not come back next Sunday or to stop giving graciously to the church. We fear being prophetic, and yet if you study the prophets, Old and New Testament, you find very clearly they are told and their life experience reveals that oftentimes it brings negative consequences. In the end, how you handle that will be determined by how God rewards you or does not when you reach the eternal presence. But this idea, it's more important to be popular. In fact, it goes along the idea that non-Christians are just as nice as Christians. In fact, I have met non-Christians. I have to admit, they are nicer than a lot of Christians, myself included. But somehow, we are looking at the relative goodness of humanity and failing to realize, as Jesus said, no man is good but God. In other words, we get this idea that nice people will go to heaven. And so we look at the niceness and say, well, I don't want to confront them with sin and death and judgment to come, heaven and hell and all those things, because they're really kind of nice people and I don't want to lose that friendship. Well, you're not being very nice if you're not telling them the truth. But thirdly, and this is really growing amongst the younger people, the Bible is true, mostly. The Bible is true, mostly, except those parts that aren't. Now, let me ask you, which parts are those and how did you decide they aren't? I'll tell you how I'd do it. I'd find the ones I don't like and I'd say, that can't be God because it doesn't coalesce with what I feel. In fact, that's kind of the fourth thing that really struck me is people begin to think that my thoughts are of equal import to God's word. That instead of bringing my life into submission to his revelation, his truth, and his word, I just go through and kind of cherry pick and say, well, this is how I think that should be read. Or this is what I think he's actually saying. In fact, there are whole translations like the Message Bible, which is filled with all sorts of things like that, where the author basically rewrote the text. In some parts, it's pretty good. In some parts, it's horrendous. That's why I don't recommend it as a book to be a a Bible of study because many times he so waters down some of the key passages to avoid that offense that you don't even know what he's actually talking about. There is a reason why the homosexual community and churches are reading, using the message as their basic Bible because when you come to issues like homosexuality and the rest, Uh, reading Peterson's rendering of Romans chapter 1, you'd never think that God had an issue of it. In fact, he reduces it simply to saying, well, uh, they've lost love and they have given over to lust. Well, it says so much more when he says that men and women abusing themselves with one another, men with men and women with women, it's pretty clear what he's talking about. And he isn't saying it's just a problem of lust because they're in a loving relationship. Nowhere in the Bible are we ever told that the quality of love in a relationship determines the rightness or the wrongness of it. But the worst thing I think that's out there, really kind of is the cap on the pyramid, is that God loves everyone regardless of what they believe or regardless of what they behave. Kind of the Disney concept of all dogs go to heaven. But this extends out to the idea that every religion leads ultimately to the same path. So what in short order happens, our thinking begins to shift. And it does become not about his kingdom coming, but it's about my kingdom coming. It's not about his will being accomplished, but what I want my life to unfold and look like and be about. Very quickly, we will find ourselves falling for the same lie that both condemns Satan and also murdered Adam and Eve. We talk about the fall of Adam and Eve. It was the murder of Adam and Eve by satanic deception. Theologians often talk about that moment with Adam and Eve as being the original sin. 
uh, as opposed to the sin of our nature. Original sin, the first sin. And they'll say, well, the original sin was pride. And even medieval theologians said, it's one of the seven deadliest sins. It's the most deadly. They listed as number seven. The, the coup de gras of sinful behavior is pride, the thing to be repented of. And I would agree that what happened to Adam and Eve was pride, but it's the kind of pride that Satan specializes in. It's not your standard run-of-the-mill garden variety pride that merely thinks it's better than everyone else. No, this pride is far more egregious in the eyes of God. It is the ultimate pride. Pride is its worst expression. It's called self-deification. Self-deification. It's the worship of self. It's sitting down and saying, I am the center of the universe. We might call it narcissistic or sociopathic behavior and all the rest, which it certainly can be. But even people with lesser degrees of narcissism have lived in this idea that it's all about me and it's all about taking care of me. This is the true and original sin, and it didn't begin in the Garden of Eden. In fact, according to Jesus, it started in heaven, where in Luke 10, 18, he said, I watched Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Now, the verb tensing of that falling from heaven is a, a continuous and ongoing thing that Jesus said, I saw the beginning of his fall, and the reason my disciples can have power over the demons is because he's continuing to fall, but his final fall doesn't happen until we get into the end of the book of Revelation. But in other words, Jesus is saying, Satan is fighting a losing cause but at the same time, we have to realize he's fighting with everything he has. And as we get closer to the end of that time that he has upon the earth, he will fight the most ferociously and aggressively, which is really what the story of the end times is all about, particularly when we talk about his chief minister, the Antichrist or the beast. But Isaiah tells us where this original sin began. He says in Isaiah 14, he says, "'How far you have fallen from heaven,' O star of the morning, son of the dawn. Um, in Hebrew, that's the word halel ben shakar. And what it literally means, it's translated in, into Latin to Lucifer. And some people make a big issue. Well, this is Lucifer. Actually, son of the morning or uh, day star is a much more literal translation of the Hebrew text than the Latin translation of Lucifer. But he goes on to say, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will make myself like the most high. If you read the whole text five times in a row, he says, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. And that is really the essence of pridefulness. It's that my will be done and my kingdom come. This is what I'm going to do. James later on in his letter would say, don't say today I'm going to do this and tomorrow I'm going to do that because he says all such boasting is wrong. But we need to say, Lord willing, I'll do this or that. And I've heard people say, well, yeah, I, I understand that. But I mean, you don't have to actually say Lord willing. Really? I find that when I don't, I become presumptuous. <laughs> I mean, I don't think James was just saying that because he was needed to fill up his quota of words for the text. He said, we should be saying, Lord willing, we'll do this and we'll do that. Because anything beyond that is a boast that implies that you have the power to control the events of your life far more than you do. Let me put it this way. You have the power to control your choices, but how all those choices play out is in the hands of God. And the more we live in that reality, the more closely we'll follow and listen to what he has to say and consider his guidance in every moment. But we find that this sin that really became the foundation of Lucifer's downfall is exactly the same technique he used with Adam and Eve. In chapter 3, he, he says to Eve, in the day you eat of this forbidden fruit, your eyes will be opened and what? You will be like God. Now, as crazy as that is, Adam and Eve, who walk with the voice of God in the garden, the cool of the day, understood, must have understood that God was so much more than they were, and yet there's this pervert desire within us to want to ascend to a place of exaltation. 
Have you ever had one of those dreams when you were so good you couldn't believe it? Yeah. Uh, when I was younger, I, I remember having dreams. I was going skiing the next morning and I have this dream. Boy, man, I mean, it was like, well, many, most of you won't know him, but he was my hero, Jean-Claude Killy, one of the greatest skiers of all time, even though he was French. And I could just see myself doing what he did when he ran the giant slalom. And then I would go out the next day and, and discover that I hadn't become him overnight. <laughs> it's interesting because what it strikes at, I think that uh, Ernst Hemley in, in, in Hensley in his famous poem, Invictus, who said that I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my own ship, and then he dropped dead. Um, really kind of underscores the reality that we boast of these things and we desire these things, but they're not something that we can really get hold of. I mean, when we consider the devastating effect of the ultimate pride of self-deification, that is the judgment that fell upon Adam and Eve, it makes sense that God began his moral law, his code law, his rules for life, beginning with the Ten Commandments, that the first two of them deal with the issue of false gods, including your own. He says, you shall not have no other gods before me, including yourself. You shall not make for yourself any idol or any likeness. You shall not worship them or serve them. In other words, there's this kind of divine exclusivity that the God of the Bible says, I am the one and only God. There is no other God. Anything that pretends to be a God is not in reality God. I alone am God. I alone am God. And yet it's amazing how many theologies and, and systems of government have predicated their whole systems on calling an individual God. I mean, this has really been Satan's toxic attraction to mankind ever since the beginning, beginning with the Tower of Babel, where they simply said, let us build for ourselves a tower that will reach into heaven and we'll make a name for ourselves." In other words, it's all about building high up so that I can exalt myself above everyone else. This pattern has been repeated since ancient times. I mean, beginning with the oldest civilizations known to mankind, the ancient Sumerians. They began worshiping deceased kings as God 5,000 years ago. At least they had the politeness to wait till they were dead before they began to worship them. Because really, really, a God that's still alive proves to be so fallible, he's hard to worship him while he's still walking the ground. Later, the Akkadian kings, though, took that step, and they began to describe themselves as living God. In fact, one of them built a temple to himself and wrote on it, the God of all the lands I see. Empire after empire through human history has followed the same path. The pharaohs were living gods, and they believed that he was the one who controlled prosperity in life. You want to understand the 10 plagues of Egypt? Those were the 10 things that Pharaoh supposedly had control over. And God was saying, you're not God over these things. I am God. But that didn't stop them. In fact, they were so holy that they could only marry their own sisters because anybody else would be beneath them. If you had a sister, I can hear you going, ooh. Yeah. Sorry, Mom. But we find the Persians and the Greeks, especially after Alexander, did the same thing. Alexander received the anointing from the Egyptians when he conquered them as the son of God. And many historians say at that point, he began to change like he really believed it was true. The Romans worshiped their founders, Ramus and, uh, Remus and Romulus. And they made Augustus God after his death. And during his life, they called him the son of God. Caligula and Nero all claimed themselves to be living gods. And we find this in the Chinese empires and the Japanese empires. It wasn't until after World War II that the Japanese emperor had to admit that he wasn't a god. But up until that time, up until 1945, the Japanese people worshipped him as a living god. And all of you who become enchanted by the Dalai Lama, you have to understand that the Dalai Lama in Tibetan religion and Buddhism is considered to be the incarnation of God in human flesh. He believes and has been trained since childhood that he, in fact, is a God. On and on it goes. 
Rulers basically saying they are God incarnate. Even in the medieval times, when we look at the kings and queens of Europe, they said they ruled by the rule of divine right. In other words, that they were a cut above the rest of us and therefore could not be challenged, could not be questioned because actually they were handpicked by God for this royal role. Now, we don't see it as much in modern history or I'd say that most people who proclaim themselves to be God, and there are thousands literally on the face of the earth right now, but nonetheless, most modern politicians wouldn't be so far a field to go and say something like that. The last one that I know of who does it openly was, in a sense, Adolf Hitler. That even George, Ge George Goebbels, uh, Joseph Goebbels in his 1936 broadcast said of the Fuhrer, Germany has been transformed into a great house of the Lord where the Fuhrer as our mediator stands before the throne of God. You see, he literally tried to replace Christ with himself as a mediator between God and man. But more common today, what we see is the elitism that's shared by what I think are the modern four horses of the apocalypse, technology, banking, media, and politics. See, many in these spheres believe that they are evolved to a higher level, a higher plane than you and I are. That's why they're wealthy beyond description. They have elevated themselves by their eliteness. There's something special. They are a progression in the evolutionary role of things, and they have come to the place as they are because they are better. In fact, futurist Ray Kurzweil, who has an amazingly accurate record in foretelling future trends and developments, simply said this view is the following. The exponential increase in technological innovation will reach a point where humans transcend biology and merge with technology and become functionally immortal as spiritual machines no longer dependent on our embodied condition. Now, you look at that and you may say, are they crazy? No, they're too rich to be crazy. Because these are the techno technological leaders of the world hold this view. They see technology as being this unlimited thing that eventually will have this melding of humanity and technology so that we will never die, we will never live, we'll transcend the mortality of the flesh. You see, but I see it's revealed most interestingly, especially amongst young people, in our modern obsession with superheroes. As one social commentator noted, he said, superheroes are the Greek gods of secular modern life. Otherworldly figures able to attack world problems with a single leap or bound, like the gods of the Greek mythology, they can be flawed. In fact, some argue that we need them to be flawed. Part of their appeal is that we can relate to them despite their being superhuman. And it's interesting, all the stories. Now, Marvel Comics says they have over 10,000 superheroes in their stall. They just don't run stories about them all the time. And if you follow the movies and the rest of it that goes on, you know, the Ant-Man and, and Wonder Woman and, and, and Clueless Man, which I starred in, um, <laughs> when you look at all these different superheroes that are out there, they all have kind of the same profile, they were all the guys who were, had sand kicked on their face on the beach. They were bullied by others. They were outsiders. They were treated bad. And that somehow through some encounter, whether they got bit by a spider or they went through some Iron Man suit was made for them. And whatever the thing is, somehow they arise finding out that genetically or biologically or just simply by nature, they have become something greater than the rest of us that they can mold and shape the world. Now, the problem with this, we might look at it and say, well, it's just fantasy. It's just make-believe. It's just storytelling. But if you take a culture that has been basically cut off from its theological roots, who's philosophically bought into an idea that there is no such thing as absolute truth or even absolute reality. When people are reading books like The Secret or doing the PMA stuff of you just have to be able to think it to make it happen and on and on it goes. 
you find that there's a generation, if not multiple generations, that have become unmoored. They've unhitched from the, from the wharf and they're drifting out in the wild seas and suddenly anything becomes possible. You ever heard anybody say that? Anything is possible. Well, let me tell you what's not possible. I'm not making the Gonzaga team. <laughs> That's not possible. <laughs> and I would like to say it's because of my age, but it's because I lacked a couple of key ingredients, skill, ability, and strength. When you have a three-foot vertical leap, you're just never going to play center. You know what I mean? It's just not going to happen. But for people like Elon Musk of Tesla and other amazing adventures, Hyperloop, SpaceX, and all the rest, what began for him as a fantasy, as a kind of bullied kid, has now grown into what he really believes is the reality. The fact that he's bipolar isn't necessarily the reason, but he believes that there's going to come a super race of technologically modified human hybrids freed from the curse of mortality. They are going to become the future immortals and they will run the world. And what's interesting is none of these guys believe in democratic systems. What they believe is the superiors should be given the, everything they need to rule and control the rest of us who are not nearly as evolved as they are. And this bridges into all sorts of areas because not just practically or theologically, but also even in sexuality, there is a current of thought that people who are gay are elevated to a higher level of development than people who are not. Now, if this all sounds too ridiculous, too far-fetched, and something can never happen, we need to just turn and look at what's going on in the church. The fastest moving, growing movement in the church today is basically the new apostolic restoration. In fact, last week, one of their, a group of their leaders was having a prayer and worship meeting in the Oval Office with President Trump. And uh, what I find interesting is that what they essentially teach is that you, if you're a Christian and you're born again, you're a son of God. And if you're a son of God, what that makes you is a little God and if you're a little God, you have all the power and potential of God in you. The same creative force that God spoke the world into existence now lives in you because you're a Christian. And you just have to believe and confess and you can have all the wealth, health, and happiness that you can believe that God will give to you. And if you don't have it, it's because you don't have enough faith. Now, it's, it's kind of a neat system because if somebody buys into that and then they die, it's because they didn't have enough faith. And if somebody happens to become rich, that's because they had the faith to believe it. But even as Chris Valdson of Bethel put it so strangely, he said, Mary was able to conceive Jesus in her womb because she had the faith to believe it. I read the story and she's going, how in the world is this going to happen? <laughs> and it says, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and give you a child there was never any mention of her saying, I'm gonna, just going to think positive thoughts. Baby, 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 baby. And that's where tongues came from. You didn't know that. You come here to get this information, right? It's like Benny Hinn one time was, in one of his teachings said, uh, there are nine persons of the, of the Godhead. There's three of the Father, three of the Son, three of the Holy Spirit. And as people are going, what? He goes, you know, you don't come here to get old truth. You come here to get new truth. <laughs> Anybody times somebody calls, qualifies truth as being new, it's just a new lie. Because I think the truth was settled once and for all. But you see, I feel like even within the church, People are being conditioned to accept kind of a superhero mentality that promises to solve all the problems of the world. That my big issue with much of the uh, new apostolic movement and, and, and people like Bethel and so many other of these groups that are growing, that their underlying theological premise is heresy. 
It's a very simple heresy, and they, they express it. I was just reading a book today, or last night, that basically saying we have to operate in faith and boldly take over the organs of government and of the economy and run the world so that we can prepare earth for Christ to return. We, the church, by our faith and our boldness, will express the power of God. It used to be called the manifested sons of God doctrine, that the world is just waiting for you and me to be manifested as the sons of God, showing the power of God, revealing our deity. The reason why this is so troubling to me is because it's a way of thinking. And again, I take you back to where does Satan really attack us? He attacks us with ideas. And we buy into those ideas and then we begin to operate on them. And not only do they not work, sooner or later they fall flat, but more importantly, they open people up to following false apostles, false Christs. And that's why Jesus gave so many warnings against it. You see, the Bible tells us this is exactly what's going to happen. In Revelation 13, uh, beginning in verse 1, John writes, I saw a beast coming out of the sea, and the dragon gave him his power and great authority, and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. You see, we get in our mind the Antichrist is going to be this kind of <laughs> ugly creature with Uh, scales and spines and he's going to be dragging around the earth with blood dripping from his mouth. I've seen all the pictures of the beast and he's truly a beastly character and yet what it doesn't, what it misleads us into thinking that externally he's going to look unattractive. In fact, John very clearly said, when I saw him and I saw the world looking at him, they were all in amazement, in wonderment, in awe. And they say things like, who is like the beast. Well, basically, he's an individual who accepts the offer that Jesus rejected. When Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness in Luke 4, it says, Satan showed Jesus all the kingdom of the world, and he said to him, if you worship me, it shall all be yours. This is the basis of one world government. There is an individual somewhere, and we're not told who he is. We're not told when he will come. We're just told what he looks like and what he does. And we're also warned that if we just simply measure him by a human calculation or measurement or metric, we'll miss it and we'll be deceived. He won't come to us as a horrible being. He will come as someone who is wondrous and wonderful. 22 different times in the Old and the New Testament, he is described. And let me go through basically a short list of what that description is. The first of all, I believe he will rise at a time of international crisis and catastrophe. Jesus said in Luke 21, 25, the following, he said, there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and on the earth, dismay among nations, perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves, and men fainting from fear and the expectations of things which are coming upon the world, for the powers of heavens will be shaken. Then I believe he manifests himself. He rises up in a time of dismay, a time of perplexity, a time of fear. We are being mentally conditioned to look for that kind of a moment. We're told all the time we have this existential crisis that's coming one of these days and we need to prepare for it. The secondly, he will appear suddenly, I believe, out of obscurity. That's where I think you're wasting your time trying to look at the who's who list of bad actors in the world and say, I wonder if it's him, it's one if it's them. And I say that not because I've seen most of those guys grow old and die and never reach their pinnacle of achievement, but obviously because what it says, it says he comes up out of the sea, which is interpretive means out of the mass of humanity. He just suddenly rises up from the midst. Even when it talks about being one of the ten horns, he rises up from within them and then deposes three kingdoms to take control of the one world kingdom. But also we're told that the man of lawlessness in our reading today is revealed The word apocalypsis in Greek literally means to uncover or to take something out of hiding. 
So we have to understand that he's going to pop up out of obscurity and it will not be obvious immediately who he is. Because Satan plays his cards very carefully. He knows this will be his one and only shot. You know, and we have, again, minor examples of this. If you go to Paris, you'll find that Napoleon Bonaparte is held up as one of the great French heroes. If you go to London, you'll find that they thought he was the Antichrist. It depends on what side of the canon you were on, I suppose. But even many looked at Hitler in his day and they saw him as being a Messiah. It wasn't just Goebbels who was propagating that idea. There were many Christians, many pastors, who began to amend their theology and say, well, we're coming into the great millennium under the leadership of Christ. Do you think there's any reason, any, just a coincidence, that he referred to his, his reign as a thousand-year Reich? Literally means a thousand-year rule? Paralleling the millennial kingdom of Christ? Those images and those pictures were chosen purposely to lead and deceive people to follow him because ultimately his goal was to wipe out Christianity and every other form of religion and follow instead a divine creation of his own. Well, he failed. And why did he fail? Because God said it won't happen until I let it happen. He's one of the few individuals in history who has come very close to succeeding, but not close enough. The thirdly, he will be able to convince most people to trust him because of his superpowers. Revelation 13, 2, the dragon gave him his power and great authority. And then, of course, where we read today, in accordance with the work of Satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders. Now, let me focus on that word counterfeit for a moment. Because counterfeit doesn't mean that the miracles aren't real. What it means is they aren't from God. They look like the same thing, but they come from a very different source. He says Satan gives him his power so that he can manifest these things and people will stand in awe and wonderment of him. That fourthly, he promises to bring peace and stability and safety upon the earth. I believe he'll be the one who brings peace in the Middle East because Daniel says in Daniel 9, 27, he will make a firm covenant with many for one week, speaking of the Jewish people. He makes a covenant with Israel. And I believe that he'll make Jerusalem his, the capital building because most people don't realize that Jerusalem is an international city by UN vote. It was called the international capital, a city belonging to all nations. There's a little bit of an argument over that right now. But I think he'll bring peace. He'll resolve this intractable issue that even our current president is trying to deal with and is having about as much success as those who have gone before him. The second thing, he'll bring a, an economic stability that will favor the wealthy, not the poor. But we're told in Revelation 13, 7, we'll explore this more, no one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. You, you have to understand what this brings is economic stability around the world. Currency is one, singular currency that's used around the world, and everybody has the same value system, and it brings worldwide equality, at least in terms of spending. He'll even bring a, a religious unity, but he does it by tearing down. Daniel says that he'll, be, he'll speak against the Most High God and oppress the saints and try to change the set times and laws. It's interesting because three times Paul calls him the lawless one. The Greek word anomia literally means to live as if there is no law. It's an idea of amoralism, which is becoming more and more popular. You see, you have three categories of morality. You have somebody who is moral. In other words, they have a code of ethics or, or laws that they follow. The Ten Commandments is a moral law because it tells you how to treat other people as well as God. And then you have people who are immoral, who violate that law. They know the law is true, but they violate it out of their own greed and willfulness or impulses. But right in the middle is a more diabolical core called the amoral. In other words, there is no right or wrong. There is no good or evil. There's no truth or falsehood. It's Pilate saying, what is truth to Jesus? 
It's the world that we live in today. It's the world of the evolutionary philosopher who says, we all just came into being by chaotic accident and random things all came together and, 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 and that's how we just popped up one day. But there was no God, there was no power, there was no authority. And therefore what follows is there can be no truth. It's just survival. And everything is explained by the drive to survive. Anything that's altruistic, like love or the concept of beauty, they say, well, that's just a chemical reaction in your brain. But what it says he will do instead, he will promote every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. He will promote every source of evil. That's an amazing statement. Every source of evil. We're living in an age where things used to be obviously evil and are now being promoted as being good. We'll get into this more when we talk about one world religion. But essentially what he is is the father of Satanism. And that's where fifthly and lastly, what he brings is not peace and safety and prosperity. What he brings is death and destruction. In fact, Jesus referred to him as the abomination. His behavior is so abominable in the eyes of God, that it will bring desolations with him. Paul, again, in 1 Thessalonians 5, said, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, right in the aftermath of them saying, peace and safety. Revelation 6 tells us that a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. and talks about a fourth of the world being killed by warfare. Daniel eleven thirty eight it says, he will honor the God of fortresses, or probably most likely, the God of war. That what he loves is warfare. What he believes, his credo is very simple. Might makes right. Power is all that's important. See, today as we face what I think is a world filled with increasingly intractable and threatening problems, that every time we craft a solution, it gives birth to 10 new problems. And people are yearning for simpler times as if they actually existed at one time or another. But nonetheless, you feel that, that angst across society. It might, we might call it the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age that we're in, that we're all living with this kind of attention of something terrible is going to happen. I mean, the coronavirus is going to sweep through America and kill off everybody. Well, it wouldn't be the first time, as I talked about catastrophism, that Jesus said that this is going to be part and parcel of the history of the world up until the end. We're not surprised by it. and We shouldn't be terrified by it. But I was always struck by something that Dr. Paul Henry Spock said. He was the first president of the United Nations General Assembly and one of the founders of what later became the European Union. And he put it in such frightening terms. He says, what we want is a man of sufficient stature to hold the allegiance of all people. Send us such a man, be he God or devil, and we will receive him. I don't think he had any idea what he was saying. But I look at this idea. We want a man who has such stature that he can hold the allegiance of all people. In other words, we want a Messiah-like Savior who will come into our world and fix all of our problems and enable us to feel safe and secure. And I never have to worry about being sick or old or my retirement or any of those kinds. I'm going to be covered because Big Brother has it all in hand. Here again, the Bible speaks of this as a reality that's going to take place. Today, this morning, earlier, when I was reading through the book of Jeremiah, and I started reading Jeremiah's prophecies about what the future looked like for Israel and for Babylon and other countries, and I thought to myself, isn't it amazing that we know that Jeremiah predates the events he's speaking of from a textual, historical context? We know that to be true. And yet he's speaking with such preciseness about these events. And yet people 
read the words of Jesus where he predicts what the future is going to be and we're kind of like, well, I don't know about that. It's kind of staggering. But when we do believe those things, we begin to live, we start watching and start being ready, not because somehow we're going to stop it from happening as some misguided believers are doing today, thinking they are the stopgap. If we, you and I, are the stopgap of evil in the world, God have mercy on us. Because we start launching out there and we're not praying, we're going to be in trouble. No, he said the end times things will become worse and worse, not better. And he says, when you see them getting worse, look up for your redemption draws nigh. We are living in a, I think, a brief respite, uh, at least economically in our country right now. Say what you like about our current president. The economy is doing really well. But there's a danger that we look at individuals whom God has chosen to use and to bless and we begin to think that there's something extra human about them. You see, it doesn't matter how long it will take. Sooner or later, the wheels will come off. I mean, you, know, you can speculate. What, what if Bernie wins? I've already bought my place in New Zealand. <laughs> I mean, we're not exempt as a country. Every great nation has had its downfall. Some have come rapidly and some have come slowly. Some came in a moment and some took centuries. But eventually, they do end. And the thing is, how are we supposed to carry ourselves? Well, first and foremost, we're citizens of heaven above everything else. We're citizens of our own nation. We have responsibilities as citizens of our nation to keep the laws, to vote, to pay our taxes and do all the rest of that stuff. But we also are first and foremost the citizens of heaven. We have a, a greater propriety over us like Daniel of old who had to make decisions or Isaiah or Jeremiah or so many others as Paul simply said or excuse me, uh, Peter said to the Sanhedrin, whether we should obey you or God, you can judge, but we're just going to do what God told us to do. My paraphrase. And I think that's what we have to understand, that that is the higher calling. That is the place that keeps you from being vulnerable and taken in by various pretenders that walk upon the earth. One of the hardest disciplines my wife and I have had to develop over the years is to not snatch up a good deal. But to simply say, you know, God, that is really a good deal. But if that's for me, it'll be there when I come back tomorrow. But if it's gone, it's because it wasn't for me. It's that kind of life that you live. I mean, that kind of decision-making process. Now, I'm not talking about deciding which flavor of gum you chew. If you need help, I'll tell you which one. But when we talk about those things that determine the, the trajectory of our life, they're major decisions that we make. And we assume that we have the ability to foresee what the future holds. Well enough to be able to project ourselves into the future and saying, I will go out and buy and sell and do this and that city and that city. Again, James says, all such planning is, is evil. It's a wickedness. We should be saying, Lord willing. And that means that we're praying, God, help me to choose the paths that I walk down, discerning your will, what you want. Because it's not about my kingdom. It's about yours. Self-deification doesn't just happen to people in high places. It happens in subtle ways when you begin to say, it's all about me. We may give it psychological labels like narcissist or sociopath or even psychopath. But the simple fact is, in all of those contexts, the individual has made this decision internally that I am the center of the universe and it all revolves around me. You know, Jesus said, don't worry about your future. Don't lay awake worrying about it. Trust me that I've got it. Trust me that I have your future. 
So many people say, I just don't understand why I can never have peace and joy in my life. It's because you think you control your future. And if you, the more you believe that, the less happy you're going to be. But when you look at it and say, God, whatever comes, I know that you've got this. There is a peace and there's a joy that sustains you through thick and thin. Whether we're talking about the length of your life or the progression of a disease or the economic issues that are going on. It doesn't matter. God's got it all in control. And his one word to you is follow me. Don't follow some of these pretenders that are out there. Follow me. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you'd give us keen discernment. Help us to recognize, God, that you have placed an expectation combined with the anointing of your Holy Spirit that enables us to make sound judgments, not based upon how they look to us, but, Lord, having prayed and waited and sought your face, we move forward in faith. As John Knox once said, the man or woman who advances on his knees will never need to retreat. Help us to be those people, we pray, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.